the past couple of weeks, I've been covering marriage. And it's such a simple topic that I've, I think I've done an all-inclusive job in two weeks. And uh, yeah, it's like you guys are all well prepared and you have very, very good marriages now, I'm sure. But this is just kind of a follow-up cleanup week, you know, right? No, it is a very complex issue. Um, that is something you could spend, literally people spend an entire lifetime trying to master and you should spend a lifetime trying to master um, and figure out how do I make a, myself into a good husband or a good wife. And, um, and for those who don't know, uh, Caleb Taggart, which I'm yet to meet, is here visiting. And he is friends with Anthony, but for some reason he's not sitting with Anthony. Can't figure that one out. But Caleb is here, so make sure you make him feel welcome. And uh, he's visiting from, from Tennessee. And, uh, but it's good to, good to see you and forward to hanging out. Um, but anyways, today we're going to cover marriage how-to. Marriage how-to. And so I've covered, the first week I covered the who, what, when, where, and why. And today I'm going to talk about the how. And uh, I'm nervous because <laughs> there's a lot of different opinions swarming around this topic. And it's a little bit, um, a little bit daunting of a topic. Marriage in general, I was like, Oh, I want to teach on it and, and move on as quickly as possible because it's a very big topic. But I hope that you guys have been able to glean a little bit from it. And then last week we had a panel of like seven or eight people sitting up here of people that have been married for, if, if we totaled up, it was, it was probably hundreds of years worth of marriage and wisdom from those marriages that were then able, we were able to ask them questions last week. And uh, I took away some great lessons from that as well. Um, but this week is the how. But before we get into it, let's do a little quiz. You guys like quizzes? You're up for quizzes, right? Um, number one, who you marry and or make children with is a minor decision that you can always just undo with the divorce later on and has no lasting repercussions. Very false, right? Very false. There's always emotional baggage that you will have the rest of your life. Now, I'm not saying that has to shape you or identify who you are. God can redeem that and use it to his glory, but that's there. There's also children, and when you share children with another human being, uh, that can be messy. Divorce doesn't solve all the problems. It solves some, but creates others. That's a reality, and I'm just going to say that it's there, okay? Um, some of you in this room have to navigate that. You are navigating that currently. Now, I'm not saying that there is no such occasion where divorce is like, you know, you can't ever divorce. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that be mindful of the fact that divorce doesn't solve all the problems. Divorce solves some, but then creates others, especially when there are children. Something to be mindful of. Now you're thinking, well, it's kind of late now. Thank you for telling me that. I'm speaking more to the people who are yet to be married or the newlyweds in the room. That divorce doesn't solve all your problems, solves some, but then creates a whole other set of problems. Sometimes it just is what it is, and you have to do that, depending on the circumstances. And it's a very case-by-case -case type situation and question. Number two, married couples fight and experience conflict over which of these topics? A, money, B, discipline of children, C, habits that are degrading or selfish, or D, all of the above? Hey. All of the above. Absolutely, right? I see smiles and nodding going on. And, uh. Number three, true or false? Ultimately, our goal in marriage is to find a nice companion, right? To spend out the rest of your life with and, and give each other true, lasting friendship. 
False. False. Now, is that a is that a uh, secondary benefit of marriage? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like I said a couple weeks ago, marry your best friend. You can't go wrong. But is this the primary goal of marriage? What is? You guys remember? The primary goal of marriage. Love. Yeah. To honor and glorify God, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How do we do that? How do we bring glory to God through our marriage? By raising our children. Raising our children, yeah. But what is your a marriage a symbol of? Yeah, Sarah. Yes, Christ loving the body of Messiah, right? Christ loving his called out assembly that we call the church, right? These are his followers, his people that he is shepherding. And he loves them and he's coming again for them. And we are, all throughout scripture, we're called the bride. The bride of Messiah and he is the bridegroom. So your marriage is like a symbol on a social stage of that lo love that Yeshua has for his people. Does that make sense? So when you are walking out in marriage to another human being, you're showing the world, hey, there is a savior and he is a redeemer and he loves his people. That's ultimately what you're saying. So yeah, with that comes companionship and true lasting friendship. But it's so much bigger than that, right? True or false, the Houston County Courthouse, or any other state entity for that matter, and its magistrates are the ultimate arbitrators of marriage and whether or not it's a biblical union. False, right? So it could be the state of California, the state of New York, the state of New Jersey, the state of Alabama. Do they, are they the be-all and end-all of what is marriage and what is not marriage? No, no. Now they can get on their computer and they can type up a little piece of paper, a certificate, and they can hit print, and then someone important, quote-unquote, can sign it and then give it to you, and they can say that that's marriage all day long. They can give it to anybody else and say that that's marriage all day long, but we define marriage according to God's unchanging word, right? And not according to what the Houston County Courthouse says about marriage, right? Is it bad to get a certificate that says that you're married, maybe from the courthouse? No, no. no I have one. I have one from the state of Florida, because I got married in the state of Florida. It's good, right? You can get tax incentives, you can do all kinds of things, but that's, that doesn't define my marriage. And in fact, a uh, funny story, um, Stacy and I, we got married, and we got married in her parents' property, and um, kind of like, like uh, the Barajas property, how they have a wedding site, her parents, we kind of created a wedding site next to their house. And we got married there, and it was a beautiful ceremony, and a lot of people there, a pastor officiated and everything. And, and then um, we took a, the paperwork that we had to turn into the courthouse, and we, um, we had everybody sign it, and we put it in an envelope, and then we took off for a honeymoon. <laughs> And we got back and we realized we had forgot, we forgot to take that and send it into the courthouse. We had it all figured out. And it, it was funny, we were joking around saying, oh, we've been, we've been fornicating for seven days, you know? But it wasn't the case because we married according to the biblical standard of what marriage is, right? And then we sent it in later and got it. We weren't. We weren't. So, true or false? The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. A union is to be between one man and one woman. Is that true or false? Is that true or false? It's true. Yeah. Now, there's confusion out there, is there not? There is. Over both of those. The quantity and the gender. <laughs> and remember, I think it's two weeks ago, we defined what is a woman, what is a man, and it's just a matter of looking at your DNA, right? Just a matter of looking at your chromosomes. Those are things you can't change about you. But that's what defines a woman. That's what defines a man. And the Bible says that only a woman and only a man can get married, and only one of each should get married. Now, other people in the Bible... 
who married multiple of one gender? Absolutely. Which leads me to my next question. When men in the Bible ended up taking multiple wives, true or false, there was a bit of adjustment period, but eventually it all worked out and everyone was happy. And there was no strife or jealousy whatsoever. False. Every single instance of polygamy in the Bible ended poorly and was a hot mess. Do you think God is like, oh yeah, let's just keep doing that? No. Don't do that. It's horrible. It damages people psychologically. It creates jealousy and strife. It is less than ideal, far less than ideal for the God of heaven and earth. Don't do it. True or false? When you were 16 or 17 years old, your parents knew you better than you knew you. Mm. That's true. Assuming you had a healthy upbringing and a healthy set of parents. When I was 16 and 17 years old, my mom and my dad knew me better than I knew me. Believe me, they did. I thought I wanted something. I thought I loved someone. I thought I liked this and that. I thought I was going to be that when I grew up. They knew me better than I knew me, right? And for many of you in the room, that's the case as well. So, how much more so should we apply that to the idea of finding a spouse? How many 15 or 16-year-olds are you like, oh, they're the one, right? And you're like, dude, I know you. That's not the one. And I, there, was, there was girls that I was interested in growing up when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. My parents told me straight up, that's not, she's not the one for you. She's not. And they actually said the opposite when they met Stacy. You know that? Yeah, they said that they knew she was the one when they met Stacy. That was kind of cool. True or false? The Bible gives clear and explicit directions on how we are to conduct our wedding ceremonies, what age we are to marry, etc. False. Did you know that the word marriage is really not in the Hebrew Tanakh in the Old Testament? It's not there. There is no explicit description of a wedding ceremony anywhere in the Bible. I've looked. There isn't. Like, why? Well, there's some things in the Bible that we can extrapolate and apply to our wedding ceremonies. But we're going to get into that in a little bit. But there's no, there's, the word marriage is not in the Hebrew Bible anywhere. It is in the New Testament, in the Greek. But it's not in the Hebrew Bible. The word husband and wife obviously are. But. So let's go through some examples of, the, of weddings in the Bible then and see if we can figure out how do we conduct our weddings. What should a wedding, because you're trying to answer this question of how do we get married, right? today. So maybe the Bible can give us an insight in that. So um, can you think of any wedding ceremonies in the Bible? Anybody? It's hard to think of it, isn't it? Huh? First miracle in the Bible? Yeah, we get a little glimpse of the first miracle in John 2, I think it is, right? Uh, where Yeshua turns the water into wine, but it doesn't give us a description of what the ceremony looked like. Just that they were all, they ran out of wine. So we know that there's wine there. There's a lot of people there. Wine seems to be really important. Anything else? Can you think of a wedding ceremony in the Bible? Revelation. Revelation. Now you're thinking too allegorically now. Think a literal wedding description in the Bible. Don't worry, I couldn't find one either. The best I could come up with is uh, Genesis 29. <laughs> Imagine this. Leah's eyes were weak, meaning she, was, she wasn't the pretty one. But Rachel was beautiful in form. Rachel was the hot one. All right. But in the morning, behold, there was Leah. <laughs> I love the Bible. It's so awkward, right? Yes. 
It's like, remember this story? Um, Jacob works for Laban for seven years. Remember that? And then he gets the wrong girl. He gets the one with the weak eyes. <laughs> yeah, something. And it just says, like, in the morning, there was Leah. And then Jacob's like, Laban, what did you do to me? And he ends up working seven more years for Rachel. It must have been a lot of wine. If that it must have been something, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's like, that's it. That's like, that's, there's a wedding. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, it seems like when a, when a wedding took place, really it was like a, it was a, it was a man and a wife becoming intimate with one another. And that is what really sealed the deal. And they were married, so to speak. But that's, that's an awkward story. And, and here, here's uh, Rachel. She's, you know, just look at that painting. It's just like, so awkward, isn't it? But look, what about Judges 14? There, there's another wedding that happens in Judges 14 with Samson. You guys remember that? And, and you go there and you go to the story and you're like, well, maybe this gives us an idea of what, what, um, what a wedding ceremony should be like. And, and Samson, we make him out to be such a good guy sometimes. When you read the book of Judges and you actually read about Samson's life, he was kind of a pampered brat sometimes, wasn't he? He was kind of like selfish and this person of passion and like manipulation. And I don't know that he's the good guy that we make him out, that he should be the good guy we make him out to be. But it's like, the, I think the essence of the story is at the very end of his life, it's like he, he was redeemed. Yeah, it's like he came through and there was redemption. But look at this wedding here. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. Oh no, Samson, seriously? When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. It's like, man, really? I mean, the guy's, a, the guy's a hunk, right? He's like, he could take any woman he wanted, like in Israel, and just like, I don't know, swoon her. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among our people, right? Like, come on, Samson. And then what happens at this wedding? He gives some weird riddle, and then they figure it out, and then he has to go down to Ashkelon, and like kills 30 guys and gets their clothing and drops it off at this wedding ceremony, and then they give his wife away. And it's like, man... Weddings in the Bible are like kind of weird, right? When humans marry each other, it's like awkward and messy. But there is a perfect wedding. Amen. There is a perfect ceremony. And it's found in the book of Exodus. Now, this is between God and his people. He pulls them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he liberates them. And he actually pays a price for them. He pays a bride price. He liberates them from Egypt. He cleanses them through the waters of the Red Sea and brings them to a mountain called Mount Sinai, the mountain of the bush, where, where Moses saw the bush. Because Sinai in Hebrew means bush. So he brings them there. And he's like, get ready, guys, because I'm going to give you, I'm going to betroth myself to you and give you the terms of the covenant I want to make with you. And you will be my people and I will be your God. So cleanse yourself and in three days you're going to approach this mountain. Remember the story? And then he starts to speak. And then the Israelites, what do they say? Well, let's back up. Before he starts to speak, there's like a covering that comes down. His presence comes down on the mountain. And there's like thunder and there's lightning, right? And there's like all this commotion on the mountain. It's excitement. The Israelites, what they say is, is like everything that you say, we will do. In other words, the vows that you're about to speak to us as our bridegroom, I do, right? And then he puts a ring on their finger, doesn't he? 
What is that ring? The sign of the covenant. It's the Shabbat. That's why Shabbat is so important in our faith. Because it's like the ring that he slid onto Israel's finger. And said, so this is a sign between me and you forever. Right? When you can stop and you can reflect on my goodness in your life. But yeah, we see all these elements here. Now, what else do we see in this wedding, so to speak? We see a mediator. We see Moses mediating between God and Israel. Yeah, a friend of the bridegroom. And he's going up there and he's like, guys, God is saying this. He's saying that. He's saying, make a tabernacle. He's saying, you know, write these things down. Be holy for I am holy. He's saying all these other things. But we see a mediator in the covenant. So we see this covering and we see lots of people, a multitude of witnesses. We see written terms of the covenant. We see a mediator of the covenant. We see all these different aspects that are very much like a wedding that we would have today. Now, whether or not that registered in their minds as, wow, God is marrying himself to us, I don't know. But we, uh, knowingly or not, have kind of patterned our wedding services after that experience. But did you have a question? They had to be set free from slavery mm -hmm. before they could even enter into the covenant with the Lord. So that was why this all was so perfectly orchestrated by our Heavenly Father. Yeah. Like I said, they could not even enter into the contract or into the covenant until they were first set free. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So this is a good wedding ceremony, I think, in the Bible. And this is something that when we get married, because you all agreed with me that our marriages are a symbol of God's love for his people, right? Yes. So how about we agree in this room that we should emulate that ceremony that God performed with his people? Now, did his people break that covenant? Yeah, he, they did. And we're going to get into that too. So then, is there a wedding in the Bible? Yes. And what are the elements? I already said them. There's two mutual, two parties with mutual desire and affection. That's very important. We don't marry people off in our faith that don't have a mutual attraction. That's, that's not healthy to do. Um, a mediator. We saw that with Moses. There, there should be a written agreement codifying the expectations of those two parties. Okay? Then I think there needs to be a covering above and on the face. Remember? Who had a covering on the face? Remember that? Now, I think there also needs to be witnesses. I think this is like the skeleton and the bare bones of a good biblical wedding ceremony. Now, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because I haven't talked about how do you get to this day. But this is the goal, I think, of a wedding ceremony and what it should look like. Now, I've got in my possession, does anyone know what this is called? A ketubah. Now, what does it look like and what does it remind you of? The Ten Commandments. Why is that? So let's back up and let me explain what a ketubah is. Ketuv means to write. So a ketubah is, is, a, written, is a written document. It's a contract between two parties. And it's patterned after the Ten Commandments because in the Jewish faith, a wedding is a reenactment of this experience right here. They know that. And I think we should too. But this is a contract between Stacy and I. It's a legal contract. Now, I don't know that the Houston County Courthouse would recognize this as legal, but it's legal in the heavenly court, which is far more important. But it says at the top here, Ani ledodi vedodi li. Anybody know what that means? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. comes from the book of Solomon. Now, I know uh, 
Uh, Mike has that on his ring. Some of you probably have that on your rings as well. It's, it's a reminder. Anila dodi vadodili. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Right? You see that a lot on wedding rings. And then it says here, you guys want me to read the ketubah, the contract? It says, this ketubah, this, this agreement, witnesses before God and all, these, all those present that on the 10th day of March in the year 2007, corresponding to the 20th day of Adar in the year 5767, the holy covenant of marriage was entered into between the bridegroom, Gabriel Rutledge, and his bride, Stacy Keene. Then the bridegroom said to the bride, I will love you as Messiah Yeshua loved the body and gave himself for her. I will provide and care for you according to the word of God. And the bride said to the groom, I will respect, love, and cherish you as unto the Lord. That comes from Ephesians 5. And each said to the other, I commit myself to you all the days of my life. I found the one my soul loves. That's from Song of Psalms, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. And then at the bottom, we have our signatures. And then we have witnesses' signatures as well. So how many of you have been to my home and seen this in my home? You ever seen this? Yeah, a lot of you have. This hangs right there in my living room. And I do that purposefully. And these are, these are typically and traditionally displayed in a prominent place in the home. Because uh, it's a constant reminder that Stacy and I are married. We're in a holy covenant with one another. And not only are we in a holy covenant with another, but that holy covenant symbolizes, we're saying that our, our marriage symbolizes the gospel. Symbolizes God's love for his people and his desire to redeem his people. So it's kind of cool every time people come in my room, come in my, um, my living room. This hangs above our piano. And I always see people who are sometimes the first or second time at my house. They'll kind of walk up to it and they'll kind of like squint and stare at it for a few minutes. And I'll watch them and just kind of figure and just think, what, what are they thinking about, you know? And so then I'll walk up next to them and say something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, that's, that's my marriage contract between Stacey and I. And... Um, she made me white out the part about making me a sandwich whenever I want it. So, uh, no, that wasn't on there. Yeah. So, the perfect wedding. So, there we have it. We have all the elements of a good wedding ceremony. Now, how do we get to this point, though? And let me, let me actually back up and give you some scriptural proof as to how I think and why I think God is, is marrying his people. And some language here. I'm going to read it in the original language. It's Isaiah 54, 5. Ki ba'alik. In other words, he's saying, I am like your husband, your ba'al. Asik Adonai seva'ot shemo. And he is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And his name, shemo ve'agalik, is the Redeemer. Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. Elohai ko ha'aretz yikra. And that's what the whole earth will call him. Pretty cool, right? So he's telling the people of Israel, I am like your husband and your redeemer, and the whole earth will call me that. Wow, that's profound. Jeremiah 3.14, return, you faithful people, faithless, uh, faithless people, sorry, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Ezekiel 16, I made you thrive like a plant of the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And then I passed by and saw you, and you were indeed old enough for love. So I spread my cloak over you and cover your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, declares the Lord God. And then I bathed you with water and rinsed off your blood and anointed you with oil. You see the language there? God 
loves his people of Israel. He's betrothed himself to his people of Israel. He's married himself to them, to her. Hosea 2, that's the entire theme of this book, is that God is faithful even when Israel is unfaithful. Now, for those people who say that God is done with Israel and he's going with a different plan, it flies in the face of the entire theme of Scripture, yes. and especially the book of Hosea. He says, On that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that crawl on the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and weapons of war in the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. So I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving devotion and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know that I am the Lord. It's God talking to his people, Yisrael, right? And then we get to Jeremiah 31. If you want to turn there, I don't think I have this verse pulled up. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31, and you should commit this to memory. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 is where we're going to start. Jeremiah 31, 33. And I guess what I'm trying to do by showing, showing you all these verses is to realign your view of marriage with his. The whole, the whole point of marriage in, in light of eternity and his love. Jeremiah 30, 33 it should be. I'm sorry. Wait, no, it is Jeremiah 31. 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, the days are coming. Here they come, says Adonai. When I will make a brit chadashah, a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by their, by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, right, to Mount Sinai, because they, for their part, they violated that covenant, even though I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will write my Torah within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother to know Adonai, for all will know me from the least to the greatest because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Right? Then we come to the first century. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, this amazing event happens where God pours out his Holy Spirit on a group of believers that are gathered there in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, Shavuot. And that Holy Spirit begins to write his law on their hearts as it does you and I, to where we want to obey him and want to follow his commandments and have a desire just inwardly to want to do that. And we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of that promise given to Jeremiah. Now, ultimately, our marriages are a reflection, a microcosmic reflection of what? We've said it a couple times already. The covenant between God and his people Israel, right? It's the gospel in a nutshell. Let's go to Matthew 25, and I'll prove it to you even further. Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Yeshua is speaking here, and he's about to, say, he's about to speak a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven, at that time, it will be like, and then he's going to talk about a wedding. It'll be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went off to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. The foolish one took, lamp, took lamps, but with them no oil, whereas the others took flasks of oil with their lamps. The bridegroom was late, so they all went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, when the cry rang out, The bridegroom is here! Go out to meet him! The girls all woke and prepared their lamps. The foolish one said to the sensible ones, 
Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us. Go to the oil dealers and buy some for yourselves. But as they were going off to buy, the bridegroom came. Now, who's the bridegroom in this parable? Yeshua. He's talking about himself and his coming again. And those who were ready went out with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other bridesmaids came. They said, Sir, sir, they cried, let us in. But he answered, Indeed, I tell you, I don't know you. So stay alert, because you know neither the day nor the hour. Unless you have a strong enough calculator. Or if you watch enough YouTube videos, you can figure it out, I guess. Just kidding. 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 3. And let's look at verses 12 through 18. And let's see if there's, let's see if there's more marriage language here. 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, Therefore, with a hope like this, we are very open. Unlike Moshe, Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would not see the fading brightness come to an end. What is more, their minds are made like a stone light. For this, same, for, for this day, the same veil remains over them. When they read the Old Covenant, the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, it has not been unveiled because only by Messiah is the veil taken away. Do you hear the language of a wedding going on there? Yes, till today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But, says the Torah, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord, in this text, means the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us, with faces unveiled, we see in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are being changed into His very image, from one degree of glory to the next, by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. It's the last verse I'm going to show you before I get into the nuts and bolts of, of marriage here. Revelation 19. It is the last book in your Bible. Revelation 19. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. And tell me if you hear any language of a marriage going on here. Then I heard what sounded like a roar of a huge crowd, like the sound of rushing waters, like the peals of thunder. What does that remind you of? Remember Sinai? Yeah. And it was saying, Hallelujah, because Lord, the God of heaven's armies, has begun his reign. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory, for the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself, and fine linen, bright and clean, has been given her to wear. Fine linen means the righteous deeds of God's people, it says. Do you guys hear the wedding language? How many of you want to be invited to that party, right? That wedding. That'd be awesome. So then, with all of that in mind, and you realizing and having your paradigm hopefully shifted a little bit and, and realigns what Scripture says about your marriage, how then do you find a spouse or not find a spouse? So, on the scale, I want to get this straight. On the scale of one time in Vegas to fundamentalist Islam, we're, we're there, okay? <laughs> we're there. Meaning, like, from, like, spontaneous, impromptu, let's just do it on the fly, might be inebriated, to, like, let's marry our daughters off at the age of 12. We're, we're, not, we're not in either of those extremes, okay? But let's talk about it. So then, how do we go about finding? 
Number one, the man is able to provide physically and spiritually for his bride, a bride. Okay? Number two, the man expresses his, his affection. Okay, so the man sees a woman and has affection for her. It could be physical, emotional. It could be her personality, hopefully all of the above. And desires to, to uh, uh, expresses desires and affection to the potential mediator of a covenant. So that man, that young man or old man comes to the potential mediator, which might be the elders of this congregation, and expresses that desire. Notice what is he not doing? He's not going to that young woman, right? First. You might be thinking, wait a second, that's weird. That seems out of order. Yeah, he's coming to the mediator and saying, now, but what did God do before redeeming his people? At the bush. Right? He says, I have a desire and affection for my people. I want you to bring them to me. Right? So the man goes to the mediator and then to the current covering of that young woman, meaning her father. who Her father is, been char has been charged with the upbringing of that young woman, the spiritual teaching and, and discipling of that woman, and the training and discipline of that young woman. So it's only respectful that the young man who has an interest in that woman then go to the man that's responsible for her protection and her training and her guiding and expresses his affection for that woman. So who does not know anything yet? The woman doesn't know anything, right? And that's to protect her. That's to guard her, right? Because there may be something in that young woman's life where she's not ready for that yet. And either the mediator and or the father know that. But the attracted male does not know that. And then the man expresses his desire and affection to the woman. See, that's like way later in the process, isn't it? And then the man sets the time and place. All this is biblical. All this is biblical. And then the woman remains pure and set apart until the wedding. Simple as that. There you have it. And then we have our wedding ceremony. Now, what you call all of that and how you navigate all of that is family dependent. I am not going to sit here and stand here and say to you that you need to have this and you don't need to do this and you don't need to go there and you need to be this age. Parents need to come together and make up the rules for their, the children that are, that are seeking a marriage with one another. And that is dependent upon their expectations. And that's healthy. So, in summary, well, let me back up and just say that these things go by many names. This, this process goes by many names. And to the extent at which you can or cannot do something, the culture within that, that relationship and those expectations, they vary. Some people call it courting. Some people call it dating. Some people call it betrothal. Whatever you end up calling it, Make sure that there's very clear delineated expectations between the parents and between the bridegroom, between the bride, okay? That's, what I'm, that's all I'm asking for. In summary, my desire in teaching this topic to you is that we would all be calibrated as families on our expectations and as a congregation as to how God's word treats and looks and describes marriage and what ultimately our union symbolize. Do you think... Let me just pose a theoretical question to you. 
Do you think two teenagers in our congregation dating could, could, could pose a potential threat to our unity as a congregation? Do you think so? Absolutely it could. Let me ask the question again, because I think some of you misunderstood or didn't understand. Do you think two dating teenagers in our congregation could, could pose a significant potential threat to the unity of our congregation? It goes both ways. It could unify, but it could greatly divide. What do you mean by that, Gabe? Jimmy and Sue are the celebrity couple of Dothan Messianic Fellowship. But Jimmy or Sue do something to one another or say something to one another or act inappropriately and Jimmy and Sue are no more. The celebrity couple is broken up. And their families are not talking to each other now because they thought that they were the perfect couple. Now Sue's heart is broken. Jimmy's heart is broken. Is Jimmy the bad guy? Is Sue the bad girl? Who knows? Let's all talk about it. Let's form alliances behind our respective uh, families and what, what, who we think is in the right, who we think is in the wrong. And let's start talking about it. Yeah, that could be really, really divisive. And I don't want that. My job as a shepherd is to keep Yeshua's flock together and to protect them. And anything that's potentially divisive that comes in our midst, I want to call it out and be like, careful. Don't do that. Be careful with that. Right? So how do we navigate that? We do it very prayerfully. We do it very slowly and with a lot of counsel. Proverbs 15.22 says, A wise man seeks a multitude of counsel. Young men in the room. If, if there's a woman at DM, a young lady at DMF you're interested in, you can't go wrong by including me, the other elders of Dothan Messianic Fellowship, and the, the respective fathers in that situation in the conversation. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. It, it can only help you do that. So in light of this, what should or should we not do? Number one, we should not try to match up young kids in our midst yeah. <laughs> and then kid around about it or talk about how cute they are. Um, you know, it, it's, it's innocent. It's cute. It's sometimes we think it's benign, but it has its repercussions. We should take marriage very seriously in this room and in our midst. We shouldn't kid. We shouldn't tease. And frankly, if you're under the age of 18, I think you should be, if you're a guy, be friends with as many girls as you want. If you're a girl, be friends with as many guys as you want. But when you enter into this understanding that you're exclusive with one another, things get weird and awkward. Just be friends can't go wrong. You get to know each other a little bit better that way, anyways, I believe. But I, yeah, I don't think we should tease. I don't think we should marry each other off as, as innocent or as silly or as cute as we think it is. What should or shouldn't we do as parents, do you think? We shouldn't tease our kids. <laughs> we shouldn't try to pair our kids up with someone. Yeah. We should teach them the, the holiness of marriage. And we should pray that God sends them so every Friday night with very few exceptions I pray over all three of my sons and I say may God bless you with a beautiful God-fearing wife one day and that's my prayer to them 
And I don't tease them. I don't say, hey, so-and-so is pretty cute. I think she likes you. I think you like her. And I don't do that. I discourage that activity. What, what um, should we as a congregation do or not do? We shouldn't prop up couples, young couples especially, as a celebrity couple. Now, I'm thankful you haven't done that. But they're fallen. They're human. And when, if, God forbid, that little thing falls apart, just give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Don't pick sides. Let it go. It's not your business. Got me? And again, I already addressed the dangers of dating. Now, Gabe Rutledge is the poster boy of what not to do when you're in high school. I probably had three or four different things and relationships at different times in high school with different girls. And when I entered into that excuse, exclusive relationship with that girl, she changed, she acted differently, and so did I. And I didn't really get to know her. I was just mainly just going off of my own just, you know, just pride and desire or whatever. And flesh. I did it wrong. And I just pray for my kids that they do a little bit better job than I did. They do it right. And you should pray for your kids as well. That God would send them a godly spouse. That they would just fall deeply in love with that person. And that their, their union would represent the gospel and symbolize the gospel in a way that, that they just can't deny. 